Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and virtual events. And our second hour is something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we've got some of the crew from the 1000th show, the Kilo show, to talk about the nuts and bolts. But first, Go ahead and submit your questions so that our panel can get to them during the first hour. And you know what, Bill? Let's get this party started. Absolutely, Liberty. Good morning, afternoon, evening, or night to all of you. And our first one comes from Guy Cochran in Seattle. And he says, what's new in OBS version 29? Go ahead, Alexander. Well, the only one that I care about, which I think is actually pretty substantial, is they now have support for Apple ProRes encoders natively. I've been running the uh, Beta 3 uh, in a couple of productions, and it was very low CPU utilization. I have an old Intel Mac uh, with uh, Xeon processors and less than 2% on average very stable. So for me, that was the most notable one, but uh, it looks like they also do have support for HEVC encoders on Windows, and there's AV1 support uh, for Intel graphics cards as well. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. The list is pretty extensive, so I would have a look at that. How are you using OBS? That was a question that came up before, and it's interesting that this, um, the, the new version, so how are you using it? Well, I'm just using it for recording ProRes 4-2HQ off the ATEM Mini. So I'm not using the USB output on the switcher. So I'm taking an HDMI output of that going into a Roland uh, HDMI encoder uh, just because it does fully uncompressed video. Then I go into my Mac and then I record the uh, program output with OBS. Nice. Guy? Yeah, one of the things that uh, dropped over the weekend inside of uh, 29 was uh, due to some of the folks that are that have been on the panel, we've got now the SRT passphrase and the ability to add uh, authentication. So one of the big things that's coming, and I do have clearance, Alex, to talk about this, uh, is that uh, YouTube will be able to ingest SRT. And so we ran from the CES front lot with uh, Keenan's cool disaster group uh uh, bonded cellular uh, solution, we were able to push up an SRT stream from uh, CES, which was pretty cool to see. So it's it's exciting to see what's coming out with uh, HEVC and SRT going up to YouTube. So things are looking cool. And it's not for everybody at the moment, still in a beta thing. Uh, broadcasters can get it and people that know people can, can get into it. So thanks for the introduction, Alex. The insights, you always get the inside scoops here on Office Hours. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I did get the prompt to update, and I'm showing um, one of the features that were listed was the um, Mac OS desk view. I actually don't know what that feature is, and I have not yet updated it, but it seems interesting. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, and Paul says, anyone have any experience with a Shure SM7B coupled with a Shure MVI digital audio interface with USB and lightning cables and five DSP preset modes? How does that stack up with other setups on office hours? Go ahead, Mitchell. I do have experience with the Shure SM7B. That was uh, one of the classic mics you saw in a lot of radio stations. Um, that mic, by the way, had the foam windscreen on it back in the day when they used to be allowed to smoke in the studio. It was a horrible odor uh, coming from those microphones. Uh, the MVI digital audio I do not have experience with. I did take a peek at it. Um, I'm not a fan of membrane switches on something that requires tactile adjustment. 
Alex? Yeah, it should it should be fine. Uh, it, it, the uh, the the MVI digital audio. Um, to Mitchell's point, it's a little odd to have the way that the switches are. I, I own one of those, and it is. Um, but it works really really well as just a general interface. You don't have anything special <laughs> in the interface. It's just bringing your uh, XLR in, but it, it it's very effective. I think that you'd be really in a in a good place with an SM7B and and a, a digital audio interface. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. And he says, what preamps and or DIs or direct insert boxes would you recommend for adding saturation and character to synths? Go ahead, Alexander. Well, the one that I like, it's not exactly inexpensive, but it's the radial HDI box. And that one actually has a compressor. There's, uh, there is a knob called color. And if you turn it up really, really hard, uh, you will get some saturation. Uh, so I, you know, I tried plugging a bass guitar into it and I got some pretty gnarly distortion out of it. So if that's kind of what you're looking for, if you're looking for a little bit of grit in your uh, synthesizer sound, then I would uh, give that a shot. Mitchell? Seems to me that uh, I don't have experience with this, uh, but I would suggest that uh, an analog uh, DI box uh, that has an analog front end because it's okay to overload an analog circuit but not a digital circuit unless it has a specific setting uh, to recreate that effect. Next question. Matt Cool in Montreal, Canada says, I have six Sure PSM300 in-ear transmitters in a rack. They each have an external power supply unit that supplies 12 volts at 400 milliamps. Is there any issue with replacing them with a single 12-volt, 3-amp power supply units and make my own cable distribution? Courtney? Uh, it shouldn't be too big of a problem. Uh, one thing you might be careful of is as you break out those, make sure your, your power 12-volt power supply it might need a little more than 3 amps. Uh, to power all of them. But I would use some ferrite uh, cores, something like these, to clip over the uh, right as you as that cable enters the power through that coaxial barrel connector. Uh, put one of these clips, some of these ferrite rings onto the cables to attenuate any RF that could be leaking in from the transmitter or coming in from the switching power supply into the transmitter uh, on each one of them to keep them from cross-talking to each other and generating uh, strange beat frequencies from their carrier waves. Alexander. I wouldn't suggest that. The way I would do it is I would get, and I'm putting a link here in Mukana, I would suggest the Sure and antenna combiner design for that system, because not only do you get to combine all the antennas in a single rack mount, you have a standard single IEC on the back. So instead of, I mean, I don't like running a lot of wall warts in my, my racked gear. So that's the way I would do it. Cleans things up. Plus you get the benefit of the antenna combiner. And Jason. Mm, I have one of these and I think I'll, I'll split the difference. I, I don't think that there's any immediate harm to this. It may or may not interfere with, with the six separate antennas. I would just be sure to do a chassis ground on each of those units and, you know, just very carefully ground your power supply. Next question. It comes from Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. And Greg says, I need to buy a couple of displays for small venue iMag image magnification, something in the 55 to 75 inch zone. What should I look for and what should I avoid? Go ahead, Sky. Well, if you're on a budget, I again, I bought the TCL from Best Buy. It's um, very consumer, but it's good 
good quality imagery. It's got all of the HDMI ports in. It's very thin in profile, so it's very lightweight. So it's easy to mount up either on a wall or on a on a stand, which is what I've I've done. Found one of those mounts that you can roll around and on wheels. So that would be a recommendation for a thrift thrifty price and a good qual reasonable quality. Alex, yeah, the, the there's always a sweet spot where you see the price jump. Um, you know, so you get a whole bunch of ones that aren't very expensive and then it go, and, it, and then it arcs up and we always kind of keep tracking what that is because it always keeps getting bigger. <laughs> and right now the sweet spot is at 85 inches. So you're not saving it. I mean, you can obviously get something not that expensive, but for $1,400, $1,500, you can get a, a 85 inch um, screen for iMac. You probably, you, you don't really need 4K. <laughs> you can get 4K if you want, but for an iMac screen, you probably don't need it. Um, you don't need HDR. You don't need a lot of other things to, to put those things up. But the bigger image does make a difference. Um, if you can get 4K, I'd get 4K just so that you have finer detail. But usually in an iMag situation, you're far enough away that it won't make that much of a difference um, for what you're doing. Uh, you can rarely get a screen that's too uh, big. <laughs> so for iMag, uh, even in a small environment, an 85-inch will make a big a big difference unless it's a really long room and, and it's going to encroach on what you're doing. But if you have the room for an 85, I would definitely get one. Courtney? Yeah, I agree with Alex. The, uh, the sweet spot used to be 55, but I just was in uh, Target looking at, uh, at some of their, uh, you know, entry-level store-branded uh, brands of 4K's, and the 75s are now under about $700. So that's a good spot, a 75-inch. And you got to realize to set these things up, you know, they're going to require two people once you get above about 55 inches because of the weight of them and putting them up on stands. So you need a person on each side of it to mount it. Uh, when you're mounting it. So take that into consideration if you're, you know, low on personnel to set these up. And Alex. Yeah, this is a good time to buy monitors. <laughs> so usually after Christmas, um, the, the second best time to get it is after the after the Super Bowl. So in the United States uh, is to buy because everyone, uh, you know, now has to get rid of whatever they didn't sell for that period of time. Also think about whether you can build or buy a case, what we did is for the larger monitors that we had, we actually built cases that, and we built a that you can buy the motor assembly separately, and then you can install it in the case and literally have it just raise out of the case. Um, you then put it, you, you can then drape it underneath it uh, over the case that's there. We, we literally had uh, Velcro on the outside of the case, so you just literally just stick it to it, and it just looks, it, it displays nicely, and it just sticks out, um, if you can do that. If you're going to attach it to something, think hard about getting what's called a French cleat. Um, and that is a, it's just a bar that goes across with a hook. There's a lot of other ways to, to attach your, your, um, your monitors, but those, when you, to Courtney's um, description, when you want to lift it up there, you want it to be as simple an assembly as possible. And that one is built for this kind of thing. Um, you know, think about, uh, also just really think about what you're, how, how you're going to mount it. Getting the TV will be easy. Figuring out what to do with it, if you have to take it up, put it up and take it down, it's going to be a big engineering process. And Mitchell? Uh, a little tip, and I see this all the time, and it makes me cry. Um, when you're shipping it home or taking it home, do not lay the flat panel flat on your pickup truck or whatever device <laughs> you're using. Uh, you will be very surprised when you get home and it's cracked. Get so it, lay it on it. its side. Get it delivered, because then it's usually, if, it, if it's Even broken better. on the one, it, when it gets there, it's somebody else's fault. Probably the most important tip of that question. <laughs> Go ahead, Sky. Yes, and keep your tables away from it because when you hear that ping sound and you get that nice right up through the glass, it's it's a painful experience. But 
ask me how I know. <laughs> I'm just going to pull this in. Um, Greg just said in the comments, what about digital signage display versus a regular TV? Um, what I would say there is that is, is that the um, the digital signage display oftentimes have a couple more detail. They have a couple more um, tools to let you go nine by sixteen um, than and sixteen by nine. So they have a couple things that are there to do it. They also the screen will last longer. So one of the things about don't, what you don't want to do is get an OLED. <laughs> definitely uh, for any of these things because the kind of things you're putting up there could stay up there for a lot a lot longer. Uh, digital signage screens tend to be a little bit more hardy when it comes to leaving something up for a very, very long time on them. They're kind of built towards that and they tend to be a little bit more expensive um, and uh, they tend to be a little bit more rugged. So as a digital signage, if you think people are going to interact with it, if you think you're going to leave up the same thing for days, uh, if you think you know, there's that you may lean towards that, but most of us find that it's cheaper just to buy more monitors than it is to buy digital signage monitors. Um, you know, they're they're usually an, enough more expensive for the size that it's easier just to use one until until we use it up and and then use another one. And Mitchell, game mode on a lot of the uh, consumer level units uh, will uh, work best for you. And also look for some that have a uh, orbiting pixel. What they do is that they take the image and they just ever so slightly orbit the, uh, the pixels uh, so they don't cause the burn in. Kind of works. Next question. Clive Kitchener in Souk, British Columbia, Canada says, looking for a replacement for TweetDeck. I've been using Tweeten, but there are a few annoying glitches. John? I just want to say, hmm, because I use TweetDeck as my main interface for, for Twitter. TweetDeck.twitter.com. It's fantastic. I've been using it for years. Next question. Alexander Knight here on the panel, Vancouver, British Columbia, says, I'm installing a new HDMI 4x4 matrix today from Tessmart, T-E-S-M-A-R-T. Specs look good. It's rack mountable. It has a web interface for configuration. Has anybody tested this? And he's got a link there to a, another device. Go ahead, Alex. I haven't I haven't tested that one. I'm using the Blackbird eight by eight in my system. The the one thing that I will say is is that what really made a difference was on that web interface to either hard, um, you know, say what the EDID is and give it a hard definition, or attach it to a monitor from a computer, lock that, you know, copy and lock it. Um, the biggest problem I had with the matrix was not getting in there into that web interface and really defining what those are. It, it, you just ended up with a lot of your computers not being able to do it because they're asking it what, what it wants and it's asking them what they want and it just ends up as black. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asks a simple question but has a deep answer. What is a showrunner? Go ahead, Jesse. I wish it were a simple question. Um, I'm going to answer this question in relation to the uh, fil feature film industry because I think people are more familiar with the terms in that arena. So if you think of a feature film and you think of the director, their job is to apply their unique creative vision to the whole project. When you think of episodic television, the director's job is a little bit different and their job is to unify the creative vision across multiple episodes in one season. The showrunner is the umbrella director for all creative decisions on an episodic television to a uh, television show to make sure that uh, the writing stays consistent, the visual style stays consistent across the season. It's a very, very high level position, and it usually comes with the credit of uh, producer or executive producer or possibly head writer. Brian? Yeah, the showrunner uh, is associated with TV production and uh, it's especially with America. 
uh, less so in Britain. And it's basically the creative but also the managerial role as well. And they're really responsible for running the show and making sure that the show gets delivered. Um, normally they're coming out of being a head writer as well. Um, and so they're also associated uh, with the writer's room, even though they might not be um, writing themselves. What would it be? What's the equivalent in Britain or that side of the world? Uh, executive producer. Although okay. I, I guess uh, a lot of those roles are now being taken by people who might have been adding financial interest into the into the production. So uh, the showrunner really wanted to, they wanted to separate themselves from um, those other titles. Copy that. Thank you. Sky. All of what's been said, uh, both the creative and the the economics of, of a, a project or a, or a product. In this case, I'm most familiar with it in the television industry because you will have a much shorter uh, time frame to create a television show than you will a feature film. And so that's why you need that consistent vision of what is the, what are the characters, who are they, and how are they, you know, interacting with each other. But then the directors, you know, take that show for like eight weeks, get that TV show done while another director is taking the next, uh, next, episode and getting it already prepped and ready. So you need a consistency and that's what often a showrunner will do. Courtney. Yeah, it's been pretty well covered there. I think Jesse got most of it for episodic television. They're really showrunners really in charge of uh, sometimes hiring the uh, writers and head writers and uh, for keeping the uh, story arc consistent over the run of the show uh, as you go between directors and writers and uh, different episodes. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I think sometimes that it takes an army of people to put together any kind of massive program like this. So essentially the showrunner, in my thinking, is the general. Doesn't mean there's no supervision over the top of general. You have the Joint Chiefs of Staff and or the president of the country or something like that. But the general, uh, the field general is in charge of everything that happens regarding prosecuting the effort to make the program. And Alex. Yeah, and I don't think that there is a quite the same thing in film as there is in TV. The showrunner really has far more creative and producer role. I mean, it's a far more creative and logistic position. Um, both um, those are mixed much more as the showrunner um, than than what you see on a typical film, because as as has been stated before, they have to maintain an arc over multiple episodes, multiple seasons, and so really the most shows rise and fall on the showrunner. Um, of, of how they're able to staff, how they're able to put it together, whether it actually gets done at the level that it needs to. Um, so it's, it's in many ways, especially as we move into more episodic um, uh, con content, the showrunners have become very, uh, very powerful in Hollywood. Um, Shonda Rhimes is a good example of one that is, you know, <laughs> signing some pretty big deals. But but a lot of other ones, though, they become um, – uh, bigger than most producers would be in film, uh, or that's what's, uh, that's what's happening right now. So it's a really interesting time to be a showrunner. Next question. Richard Lavery in Belfast is up next. We're getting a ground hum from our Mac Mini M1 to our desk using Mini Jack to RCA cable. Any options for eliminating this easily? Alexander? Well, you didn't mention how long of a cable you're using. So I'm going to assume you're using a relatively short cable under 10 feet. And I'm going to assume that you've tested the cable. There's nothing wrong with the ground on uh, or the shield on that uh, that cable. So assuming that, what I would suggest doing is get yourself a DI box and convert that immediately to a balanced signal. So I'm putting a link here in Mukana, but the radial 
uh, Pro AV1 Stereo DI is a good converter box. So that's what I would do and see if you still have the problem. Jason? Mac minis are notorious for this um, for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that there's only two pins. You, you don't have that center third ground. Um, the way that I fixed this is first get your get your DAC outside of the device. So, you know, get an external sound card, even if it's a little bit of a cheap one. And then IFI makes a product called the iDefender. And this is um, the USB ground loop eliminator. They make it in USB-C, USB-A. You can actually add separate and cleaned power um, from or to this device. I'll put the link in Makana. I've used many of these over the years and they really clean the studio up. Mitchell? Now, Richard, let's first look at why you have a ground loop. Is uh, It means you have a problem with your power uh, going to your Mac Mini. It's using that headphone jack to establish a ground, and that's not really the best path because that's what causes that hum. Uh, the best way to get rid of it is quickly just try plugging your Mac in to the same uh, outlet that the device that, uh, that, the, that the mini jack plugs into. Chances are if the three-prong plug is going to find a better ground via that uh, route and eliminate the problem. And uh, as uh, was mentioned earlier, um, a DI will work well. All that you really need is a high-quality transformer that's going to uh, block that, RF, excuse me, that power uh, continuing on to the uh, other input on the other device. Alex? 15 years since I've used a headphone output from a computer for audio. Um, you know, so um, it is, you know, and, and that was when I bought my first USB Pre-2. And I realized that I don't have to think about anything about grounds. I don't have to figure it all out. I just had an output. Uh, you don't have to spend as much money as a USB Pre-2. There's plenty of USB to balanced outputs that you can get that are a lot less expensive, under $200, even under $100. But I will say that everyone can do what they want, but I never, ever, but like never, 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 ever use an unbalanced signal coming out of a computer, like ever. <laughs> like it is, it, it, because you get into a production and suddenly someone adds something to the system and you have a ground loop and now you're chasing everything around, you know, where all you need is a USB to a balanced output, whether it's, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of interfaces that will do this. And you put that in and you, that never happens. And it's just, and the first thing I do if I'm in a production and I hear a ground loop, I just start looking for laptops and looking for DI boxes and looking for headphone jacks. I just, I just walk down the line and I always find someone <laughs> that's got Playback Pro or, or, or some QLab or something and they have a little headphone jack and I'm just like, just pull it out and the, it all goes away. And Courtney. Yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, try not to use unbalanced outputs out of any computer. They, um, in worst case situation, you can just make sure, as was mentioned earlier, that both uh, devices that you're running the audio between are plugged into the same outlet and have a good grounded cable on one of them at least. Unfortunately, the Mac has a two-pin input for power. So you might try running a ground wire, attaching it to the case somewhere, metal, metal uh, area on the case to ground which is the ground pin on one of the cables. That might help, but otherwise use an A to D converter and go digital between the two. Next question. Next one comes to us from TJ Asher in Minneapolis. And TJ asks, for those who do voiceover work, are there any tips or tricks for keeping your voice clean before a performance? Do you avoid certain foods or drinks? Mitchell? 
I was going to show you some of them, but um, I think that I'd be yelled at, so I won't uh, gargle or do other nasty things. Uh, the best thing you can do for your voice is treat it well. And if you're going to do uh, like a bunch of uh, uh, vocal readings, do some exercises, vocalizations, so it loosens things up. And then the things you don't do, you don't want to have a bakery item like a donut because it's going to make your lips smack and make all kinds of weird noises. Or dairy. Dairy is bad. Um, if you just need something quickly, not cold water, but just uh, tepid water or something that's uh, that's near room temperature. And um, if you want a, a great liquid uh, tea, hot tea with uh, uh, with honey in it, will do your vocal cords wonderful things. Sky? I, yes, I don't have much to add to that. I've also heard lemon in that, honey. Lemon to help the, the acid will help you go. But also the, the vocal exercises and, again, the stretching. Of, of your mouth and your lips and your teeth and your tongue to keep everything, uh, get your articulators warmed up. Next. Jesse. Um, Jesse half, yeah. uh, thank you. Uh, half of your time recording or uh, half of your time spent recording a voiceover should be spent warming up and cooling down. Avoid dairy and stick close to hot honey, lemon water, especially during the cool down to, to just help soothe everything over. Cool down. I've never heard that. What, it, what happens in the cool down? It's a lot like the warm-up, but uh, you just spend some time uh, after the recording letting your vocal cords relax, but similar exercises to the warm-up. Nice. Bill? All these things are useful if you're doing it occasionally. If you're doing it professionally, you're going to be reading aloud every single day for a significant amount of time. I would recommend 10 to 15 minutes a day consistently every day unless your voice is stressed and you need to rest it. And if you're doing that like a runner, you can walk into a booth with no warm-up and do your job. So the question is, how seriously do you want to take this thing? Uh, keep your voice in top shape by using it every single day and you should be able to walk in with no warm-up if you're off for a month you definitely have to use some of these techniques to get yourself back in shape go ahead alex yeah when i'm when i used to do a lot of voiceovers i would not drink any dairy <laughs> like at all um i made sure i had enough uh room temperature water don't don't ever use uh, cold water. Um, it, it actually tightens up your vocal cords. Um, the, uh, and finally the, the stage trick that I use that before every single voiceover is I put a cork in my mouth and I count, I go one, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five. And, or I stick my tongue out, which I won't do on the show. And I do it if I don't have the cork as far out as I can and then do those things. And what it'll do is it'll open up how much your mouth opens and shuts. And uh, it, you just have much better diction for a small amount of time, like right before you, you read it. And, um, and then other, other than that, I, uh, I, I almost do all my voiceovers before 10 a.m. <laughs> like, like this, because it, it, that's when it, uh, it's usually the loosest. And Courtney? Yeah, here, here's Alex right before he starts his voiceover. It's the cork comes out. Uh, the, yeah, Alex said is something important is, is your vo your vocal cords are loosest when they're most relaxed. And that would be first thing in the morning. Uh, but if you're trying to do voices of, hey, excited teenagers, you know, you want to drink a lot of Red Bulls in the afternoon to get it up. And so I avoid <laughs> caffeine if you're doing, doing a more authoritative voice, uh, you know, if you're not doing excited teenagers. Hey, let's go over there. Yeah. And Jesse. And if you are planning to do this long term, uh, definitely 
get a, a vocal coach to teach you what proper warm-ups and cool-downs are and how to not do damage to your voice. Because if you are recording for three, four hours a day over a long period of time, you can be doing a long-term damage that you're not even aware of until it's too late. So so consider getting a coach to to walk you through the, the steps. Mitchell, real quick. I would consider the the morning thing, but um, I find that that's because I have phlegm and my my vocal cords are loosest, um, and they change over time. So I'm only good for about ten minutes of reading, and then it's back to my normal uh, squeaky voice. So be careful out there. Next question, Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany says, "What functions would you like to use your Elegato Steam Stream Deck Plus knobs for?" Brian. Yeah, so this is uh, something that's competing with Loop Deck, but uh, being able to have knobs um, and buttons at the same time too gives you great access in a graphics program like Photoshop. So if you're doing XY axis, if you're wanting to get really granular control, um, being able to have a knob to be able to control that would be fantastic. Alex? Yeah, I'm playing with mine in Logic, and of course, it's just being able to do things like control volumes and control sliders, you know, specific to editing. I'm mostly editing... um, podcast in it so so mostly i'm trying to tie i'm literally trying to tie all the buttons and all the dials to the the buttons i really only use probably eight buttons and four dials worth of things to do what i'm doing so i'm trying to kind of tie tie each one of those uh to that but i think volume is is probably the most obvious one in in most environments um there and then specific sliders there the other thing that i'm experimenting with is um some of the values in resolve for color correction and so on and so forth of being able to just kind of grab those things and and change um, the the basics of what I I may want to, to 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 grab onto. So those are the things that I've been focusing on the most. Next question, Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is up next. He says, for those that attended CES, any cool things in the remote power space? Go ahead, guy. Yeah, it's, yes, it was kind of a theme. I think that a lot of people um, are are looking after brownouts or blackouts or just wanting to uh, have something to power their fridge or go out and do these um, expedition type things. For for us, uh, production people, uh, I've seen Goal Zero, Jackery, some of these guys using these uh, kind of lunchbox looking uh, power supplies. And there was a lot of them at the show. Uh, when Keenan and I did our uh, little experiment for SRT to YouTube out in the field, he has this really cool Jeep. Uh, these are my laptops down here. Uh, one was running OBS, and uh, that's how we were pushing uh, SRT up via this um, this uh, cellular motor. But you could see the uh, the Geniverse uh, portable power supply. So the cool thing about it is it's got a USB uh, C that's DC, so you're not going through that 120 conversion, and that was uh, cool to see. Uh, the other ones that were in, let me backup so you could see like some of the bigger ones that they came out with at the show so in their booth i know chris widener particularly was looking for something that could handle an rv so this stack of these two these aren't light though these are like 60 pounds of whack and then if you if you hook them together there's a way to get that higher amp uh, to a power rv type devices so again this is Geniverse. uh they had a bunch of times uh that uh show how long it would take and then they uh, to to deplete one of these. So basically on there, we, we had uh, 
a blender in the booth and we're sitting there pushing the blend button like over and over again to see uh, what the screen would do. So being able, I had this happen recently where the power went out here in our house for three days and I lost uh, three fridges of food, over a thousand dollars of food. So me getting one of these is important so that uh, next time the power goes out, we can at least last a couple of days. And with the solar charging option, you can, uh, you know, even without any power, you can charge them back up. Hey, there's Jeffrey Powers. Uh, Jeffrey Powers and Keenan stopped by in the booth and they have this like pergola where you can uh, put so- uh, like if you don't own the house, maybe use or renting, you could put power in these pergolas and then be able to take it with you. So that was pretty neat to see. Um, what else did they have? That was just really cool. I mean, for those of you who have been without power, I mean, you know what it's like. But yeah, the, the Geniverse stuff is is really interesting. I'd say that O2 is the 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 new one that's out with the the LED readout that tells you how many how many uh, amps you're pulling, how much time you have left. It's really nice to have the the screen. And so these guys have uh, Keenan and, and the guys have been testing these things, and I'm I'm anxious to get one so I can test all our aperture lights because we have. A bunch of aperture lights in our showroom and i'm gonna get one of these and do a test to see how long the aperture will run on one of these o2s uh for rental houses and whatnot but that was really exciting to see at ces so that's nice. what's there thanks guy mitchell hi on that shot of uh keenan's uh, vehicle who made that beautiful wooden stand that was in there i'm sorry it's a sorry, i was eyeing that been. too it's very the, nice. The wood. Let's scroll back down to that if you guys don't mind. This right here is made by our yes. very own Chris Fenwick. So, uh-huh. yeah. of course, <laughs> yeah. There's a couple tall makers in there, and you can pull them out. Keenan had all this coffee stuff in there, which uh, was pretty neat because I needed some water, and he had this water thing that was for coffee. <laughs> so that's his disaster group uh, modem that had the three sims. I believe it was AT and T, Verizon, and one more. We had a web presenter, so we're his solution. This is Keenan's bag where he he's able to push right into the web presenter and power all this stuff. Uh, pretty pretty easily because it's so lightweight. And then it was just HDMI in from his camera. So we had, and that's his rig. I mean, it's so cool. Uh, he made me want one. I'm, I'm, I'm now looking at that. They had a hybrid Jeep there too. So this, the modern version, or this is a modern car, but uh, the new version, the 2023 version of the Jeep now is a hybrid. So you, you have 40 uh, miles of plug-in power and then you, it's a gas one as well. So that's the new Jeep Wrangler HE, which we got to sit in as well. Mm-hmm. Let me see if there's a better shot. Is there a Teradec the next test. to that web presenter? Um, I don't think so. I think that that was, I'm not sure what that was. Nice. Yeah, I'm not sure what that this was. This is looking yeah. like a second hour to me. <laughs> it, is, it is. Thank you, Guy. Yeah. Next question. Next question comes from Liberty White in Toronto, Ontario. For those with iPads, how do you use them in your creative production or productivity workflow? Go ahead, Sky. Well, initially we were using it as our teleprompter for our Madden Kitchen experience, and it was able to be connected to a, a iPhone remotely and then was be able to control remotely uh, in a teleprompter situation. But more recently, I'm also really excited about Resolve being able to be used on the iPad. And so you've got some more flexibility of at least doing some decision making. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd want to edit my fingers on, a, on an 11 inch screen, but there's an opportunity now. Mitchell? I recently bought this um, iPad Pro real cheap on Amazon, and I use it for my mix effect. All right, Bill? 
So I use mine on location a good little bit. I have it in kind of a uh, hard case with a strap on the back, so it's really easy to take out. And most often when I'm shooting, particularly if I'm shooting with an iPad on a monopod, the ability to aircast, uh, airdrop uh, the, the signal or sync the signal back up with the iPad means that I have a remote monitor that I can use on location to see what my phone is seeing. And it's really useful to get high angles, low angles, and put your... Uh, monopod mounted phone somewhere unusual for a nice look. Go ahead, Jesse. I use it a lot as a distraction-free writing tool. Of course, you need to have a keyboard. I cannot write on the, the on-screen keyboard. But when we're doing live streams, we always uh, load the uh, World Clock app up on giant monitor so everybody can see what time it is everywhere that they're broadcasting. And if we're working with a band that has fans in a certain city, we highlight that clock above the other ones uh, so that we can keep an eye on exactly when it is where their international fans are. Alex? Yeah, my primary use for my iPad is creative like brainstorming. So that can be opening up notes and typing into it where it's just, I just feel like it's light. I'm not tempted to do a lot of the things I would do on my laptop. Um, I am fairly focused. Uh, also I do all of my storyboarding, all of my keynote planning, everything else on my iPad. So, and I specifically have an iPad. I have an older iPad for building my keynotes. And the reason I do that is because I went ahead and put the matte, it's a matte finish that has the, um, the surface that feels like a piece of paper. Um, and, uh, and because of that, that little bit of drag really makes it feel like you're writing on paper and it's just much nicer when I'm sketching. So when I'm sketching ideas, so that one I don't use for a lot of other things, it's like an older iPod, iPad Pro that I, that I put it on. Um, and so it does, it's still very versatile, but I can just sit there and sketch things out. And, uh, I like that a lot. I also use it for a mix effect. And then for clocks, like Jesse, I, I put a clocks up. I use uh, one called Atomic Clock. And you want to look at the pictures. It's one with the BBC like dots around it. And we oftentimes mount those uh, up pretty high because you can see it from a distance and you know that it's, it, it is the, a pretty good version of the truth. Just make sure that you don't borrow one of your kids' uh, iPads for that use and they have big pictures of cats on it when it goes to sleep. <laughs> it's, not, it's not embarrassing at all when it pops up in a large corporate event. Right. John? iPad is a terrific control surface. And so I use it for soundboard. I use it for DMX light control. And I use it for, there's a there's a pretty decent app for controlling the Hyperdex remotely. Nice. Jason? Yeah, plus, plus one on atomic clocks. It also works on the iPhone and actually on the Apple Watch, believe it or not. Um, and it is perfectly in sync. And most recently, I believe you can set the NTP server that it's, it's using, um, which is very, very, very handy. Because even if it's wrong, it's wrong in exactly the same way, which is exactly what you want when it comes to a clock. At current count, I have 2,563 notes in my um, Apple Notes. Um, Alex is probably going to beat me by a mile. But, You're just um, getting started. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> See, this is what happens when I say, oh, boy, am I getting old? And somebody goes, ah, you're a kid. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's I use um, – anytime I'm in production, I have a, a really nice vice that just holds the iPad there, and I use notes almost exclusively. And, and by the way, you don't actually need a special keyboard or even an iOS keyboard. You can pair any Bluetooth keyboard immediately to it. For the iPad Pro, um, of course, also the USB – C is class compliant. So plug it in and you're done. Courtney? Yeah, anything that has a, a web control for it, you know, web-based like mixers, mixers or 
switchers or routers. Uh, web control interface it's handy to have portable ones. I have a one for my uh, DJI Mini Probe is the primary uh, interface for that that I use for flying the DJI. And I have a Windows 8-inch tablet that I'm running a touch version of Unity on for my comms separately. So if my main computer goes down, a separate computer is right there running comms, and I can still communicate back with the back end here, uh, telling them I'm going to be straightening out my main computer. And Sky? I was just... I- talking with Guy the other day, and he introduced me to a new tool to allow it to, an iPad to become a monitor. And I'm just thinking how flexible that could be, but I haven't had a chance to really exercise it. But what was the name of that that tool and software uh, and connection, but also a cage to hold it and mount it? So yeah, there yeah, it is. That was something that was released at CS as well was uh, Axoon has this little device called the CMO. And it comes with the uh, cable to allow you to, to turn your iPad into an HDMI monitor, and it'll do HDR as well as things like focus peaking. So if you have that gorgeous 12.9 or whatever size uh, uh, monitor you're carrying, this thing can mount on the, the new stand that they came out with. So you can uh, put it uh, uh, at an angle and then have the MP batteries to uh, to, uh, to charge it, as well as with the cage, you have the ability to have a quarter 20 things uh, all around it. Yes, Guy, I am right there with you. I asked this question because I realized I have highly underutilizing my iPad and I just set up the second screen and some of my friends were laughing at me. So I was like, yeah, everyone here is using it in a different capacity outside of like, I use it for brainstorming and always notes and it's great for dropping, (laughs) having all photos and dropping it in different ways. But I am going to start using it more so or have started using it more so with editing as well. So I was like, let's get all this brain trust. So thank you. I have like a curriculum now of just how I'm going to start using my iPad. Mitchell? Yeah, to Sky's point, I use Monitor Plus to control my Sony cameras with the mix, uh, the iPad because it's just an easy way and it's got a monitor built into it. So you can walk around while you're, uh, at your TV's uh, pointing the camera. Awesome. And Bill? Liberty, tied to your uh, computer or your laptop with sidecar and just a cable, it makes a great second monitor if you need a little more screen real estate. Sidecar, that is the name. Thank you. That's what I was trying to remember. Yes, sidecar, I finally set that up and it's been awesome. So if you ever see me looking down, just know the iPad is working very well. Next question. Next one comes from Jonas Dattel in Stuttgart, Germany. And uh, Jonas says, any new cool cameras released at CES? Guy? Guy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we saw the uh, FR7 was there in the Sony booth. That's uh, one to see in person was was pretty cool. I was hoping to see the Panasonic UE160 there so I could see how the motors, uh, because they have something called direct drive on those ones. And I wanted to see the action, but they didn't have it one there because that's a new one. And uh, they did have the Lumix S5 II uh, and the S52X. Those are really exciting because they have phase detect autofocus. Um, it was neat to see how it wasn't making mistakes. I mean, if you've used Panasonic cameras in the past, uh, it wasn't very good. So their new uh, autofocus is on par and quote, if not better than Sony's. Uh, so I, I, for them to say that, I probably should have recorded them because <laughs> that's pretty, that's a bold statement, but it was doing it in the booth. I've got to hold it and play with it. And, and that's a really nice camera. The other thing that was super impressive besides that one was uh, this one here that'll be out later. Uh, we spent some time in the, in the PTZ optics booth because we, we just went on a whole nother tangent. It looks like any other PTZ uh, camera, but the, the exciting thing about this one is what's going to happen in the future. So we, we've seen a lot of, uh, uh, 
cameras that will auto track, but they were showing how you could pick a specific person. And then the more I talked to Paul, he, he, he let the, the word out that it's actually uh, using computer vision. So this is a term that was a theme at the show. And I've seen it in the past in two, uh, 2020, when we went there, there was a lot of com computer vision stuff. Uh, you can use computer vision for counting people. Uh, you can use it for things like, uh, you know, seeing if a package it, it has got a dent in it or a tear, like in this example. And, and this is happening super fast. Like if you have the right processor in there, this stuff is happening like many, many milli, mil, times a, a millisecond. It's just scanning. And the police use this all the time for, if you notice that they have cameras all around it and they're grabbing license plates. So this is something that's built into the new PTZ optics where this stuff, to, to see it in real time, I should have shot some some videos to show you guys, but you can go online and just search for computer vision and you'll see what I mean. Uh, but that's that was an exciting thing at the show. So the PTZ optics move, it's not shipping yet. That's one uh, that was uh, for our industry. One one thing that was exciting uh, that I saw where I just was like, oh my gosh, there's limitless possibilities in the future with, the, with these cameras. Nice. Next question. Marcello Moyano of New Jersey up next with what's the best way to detect and fix packet loss without calling your ISP? Alex? Well, the first thing, of course, is to is to find a way to measure it and just see what you're looking at there. Um, uh, we mostly our routers do that. So if you if you buy a more expensive router, it's going to tell you a lot about what's going in and out. I mean, obviously, there's some very large, very complicated uh, uh, service provider level um, measurement that you can get. It's probably not what you want to use in your house, but a ubiquity router or a um, and, um, Meraki router, which is what we use, um, will give you a lot of back-end information about what's going in and out. You obviously want to reduce anything that's going between you and the ISP. And then once you've measured it, there's, the only thing to do is to uh, restart your modem, make sure that your modem is is up to date, make sure that your router is up to date. And then after that, call your provider. Courtney? Uh, there is uh, online tools, of course, you can go. There's one called Packet Loss Test uh, that you can just start the test on your ISP and uh, it sends and receives packets and measures the number of packets lost. And it takes about 10 seconds to run the test. And let's see how I did. Aye, aye, aye. And we scroll down. Let's see. Zero uh, percent. So pretty good, huh? No packet loss. Packetlosstest.com. And Jason. Before you think you need to get an extremely expensive router, um, Alex mentioned it, but the Dream Machine Pro from Ubiquity does this in real time, and it has to do with the way that it can, in in real time, identify and tag traffic transparently. $379, and it is running continuously live and in real time. Next question. Jonas Donald is back from Stuttgart, Germany, with what surprised you most at CES? Alex? Uh, I think the Sony Sony getting in, in into cars, uh, you know, figuring out how they're going to do that was a surprise. I, I I don't know if it's a good surprise yet or not. I don't know how successful it'll be, but but Sony's uh, you know foray into getting part of cars is, was was an interesting uh, move. Guy, yeah, there was a couple of themes really that we saw there. One we talked about earlier was the the portable power and people concerned about whole home power. Their thing was uh, autonomous vehicles, which was again a theme in, in 2020. Uh, this year, seeing a monster, I mean, like the size of a house, uh, Caterpillar truck being remotely controlled, talk about work from home. These guys were moving in, from the show floor, 1300 miles away. Anybody could jump in that seat and control that thing and move dirt around. They set up two locations where you could uh, control a dozer or a big old, um, 
uh, crane. So people were scooping up do- dirt it, right there on the show floor that was hundreds of miles away. It was super cool. Uh, the other theme, um, I would say, uh, work from home. There was a lot of webcams, but you know, we did see the Ozbot there. That impressed me. It, it, is, it does have a similar picture quality to uh, the Link 360. Other webcams, I was like, man, you guys just need an Insta360. <laughs> you need to start putting in half-inch chips. A lot of microphones, uh, a lot of uh, for conference rooms and things like that, weren't, those weren't super impressive. But uh, one of the other things that I liked was, was this uh, hologram. So this thing looks just like a like a table, but it's actually like minority report where it, you start to see things and, it, and they're not really there. Like I'm pushing this mm-hmm. button and it's, it's in thin air. And so that, that was really another thing that was like, what, what are the use cases? So for like COVID stuff, if you don't want to touch things that other people are touching, you're just touching air. So this was super impressive to see this in, in real life where uh, it's the future. I mean, being able to just touch things that aren't, really there is it's just out of this world so yeah those are a couple of the things that that were uh really cool really shocking and alex yeah the, um i uh can't remember what i was talking i was so i was so into what guy was showing i, I lost the minority part that was like the minority report like it's it's sooner than, than <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. later <laughs> next question uh next question comes to us from uh morgan price and Morgan says, anyone have thoughts on the Sigma 1835 1.8 art lens on the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K cameras? I've not heard a lot here for Zoom type setups. Sky? Well, my opinion is I love that lens, I but I bought it for a specific purpose of being portable for shooting a film in 4K and putting it originally on my pocket uh, cinema 4K, which I did have to buy the adapter for, which was almost as expensive as the lens, but it gives it gives great bokeh. It gives me flexibility. It's very durable. And then I was able to attach it directly onto my 6K camera, but I don't use either of those cameras for a zoom experience. I stick with my Brio here. So as a cinema lens, art lens, it's awesome. Alex? Yeah, we've tested the 16 to 35 uh, uh, Canon lens and the and the problem wasn't so much anything about the lens, it was the focal length. So you're going to find that you're not going to go to 18. Um, you're not going to go past 24. So, you know, when you go wide and so you're better off with in my, I strongly recommend a 24 to 70. We bought like 10 of them um, because you're not going out to 18. And, um, and so you're, if you're not going to go past 24, you might as well get a 24 to 70. It gives you a lot more focal length to work with and you find that you are usually somewhere between 35 and 60 is kind of the area that you're going to be living inside of for a zoom and experience when you're talking to folks i'm at about 50 right now in my last setup i was at 35 but 35 was the end of the 16 to 35 lens so you have a lot more flexibility if you're if specifically you're using it as a as a zoom webcam kind of setup outside of that it's an incredible lens and so um, if you're going to use it for other things then it makes sense Jason? Um, I'm going to offer some macro advice for lenses. It is logarithmically harder. If you plan, if you bought this and plan on shooting it wide open, it becomes logarithmically more challenging to have a larger aperture, um, meaning a smaller number 
um, and having the same level of clarity and focus and sharpness in that lens um, as you have, um, you know, a, a zoom. Uh, that's one of the reasons that prime lenses are traditionally used when you have generally anything before or after 2.8, um, 2.4, something like that. Um, that said, the lens looks great. Bill? Yeah, I'm right now on a Canon 1635, and it's a 2.8 lens. So at uh, Jason's point, I think it might be a little bit sharper. But for me, the choice was this. I already have... Uh, 24 to 70 covered and 70 up to 200 getting a wider lens just added more capability for me to do landscapes and other things when I want to pull this out of this rig and go out into the field so I was buying for capability I didn't have before and adding it on the bottom end and I also found I could use it for office hours and it works really well for me so it you know everybody has different needs that was my thinking and Jesse I love the lens. I use it all the time. It, uh, for the price, it really can't be beat. If you are moving from a micro four-thirds system to a, th a super 35 system, 18 to 35 might sound like it's a pretty broad range. But what you'll find is that 18 to 35 on super 35 or full frame is very zoomed out, even at 35. And like Alex said, you should consider something that can zoom in even more. That said, we shoot on that lens all the time, and I really, really like it. Next question. Greg Gibson, Washington, D.C. I'm looking for a data carrier solution for my PepWave router for bonded cellular. Any recommendations for a provider with unlimited data, less than $10 per gigabyte? Go ahead, John. Greg, hit up Keenan uh, in Discord. He's He's got a solution. Next question. Uh, next question comes from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. For a two-host show like a video podcast or news show, if you had the choice, would you do this in person on one set or remotely through something like Riverside or Squadcast? And what's your rationale for each? Go ahead, Alex. It depends. <laughs> if, if the environment is, if, the, if both of their environments are great and they've got good mics, I think it's better to ha let them just go ahead and do it over the internet. You want to double end somehow. So you want to have the device to be able to double end at Riverside, of course, let you do that. Uh, remember that Zoom has already announced that they're going to do it too. <laughs> so, so we're going to be able to do this sometime this year. We'll be able to switch over to that. Squadcast, I believe, is only audio. So it depends on what you're trying to do for the podcast if you need an audio element to it. Um, but those would be the things. If if they have great environments, it's really cool to see them in their own environment. Um, it it is more logistically complicated to put them in the same room. But if they don't have great places to do it or good internet, um, or you don't and can't double end, then you want to put them in the same room. Jesse. Uh, if it's it, if all things aren't equal, if they're coming in through a phone call, uh, d don't even bother. Bring them into your studio. Uh, I I won't make it more than one, two minutes in a podcast if it's a phone call. There's no way audiences are signing up for another hour-long, poor-quality Zoom chat uh, at the recreational time. Um, and that said, uh, I, I'm going to push back a little bit, Alex. Uh, when I listen to podcasts, within five minutes, you can tell if they're in the same room because there's a different energy between the, the host and the guest if they're in the same room than if they're coming in through Zoom call. I understand that it's not always feasible uh, and you might be able to get some guests that you couldn't otherwise get if you're able to do it through through a Zoom call, but the, the energy level just drops and it, it wanes so so much over the course of an episode unless they're face-to-face -face and able to make eye contact and really feel the energy of, of each other. Next question. Oh. Go, go ahead. Go. 
Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida says, are there any standards for tripod camera quick release plates or at least a de facto standard? Sky? Oh, I so wish there were. But my my the way I solved that problem was I just stuck with this inside the Manfrotto you know family and then had multiples of those plates because somehow you'll you'll misplace them you'll leave them on a different camera and you'll get out in the field and not not have something to mount but uh i i so wanted benro to have that same but no it's a different mounting bracket so then frodo dave so back in the 90s uh i shot with one of these and this is a standard definition very expensive camera and it's a monster and it's heavy and it used a plate like this which allowed you to mount it on a number of different tripods i used a miller head with sticks up here in canada we use wood because your fingers stick to the metal um it's uh, adjustable so that you can put it anywhere on the slider to balance with it has a quick release at the front which grabs the front and back of the mount the shoulder mount for the shoulder has locks at the front and the back. When I moved to 1080p, I got one of these carbon fiber, lightweight, hang it by my little finger kind of things. And this is the uh, plate for it. So this plate is uh, going on a Manfrotto like Sai uh, said. And uh, this is, oh, I don't know, maybe five, 10 pounds. So it goes from 30 pounds to five pounds, and that's what will decide whether it's a standard. As soon as cameras are standard, mounts and tripods will catch up. But uh, this mount here is all I use now, and it's very easy on my easy tripod. Jesse? Uh, yeah, you choose a family and you buy into that family of tripod heads. We went with Manfrotto. There are other options. Mitchell? I have Sackler. Uh, here's a Sackler Arca plant, uh, quick release panel sitting on my uh, Kessler. Uh, one thing about Arca is to be careful where you buy them. If you get knockoffs uh, from some foreign country, um, they may not be machined to exact specs. They sometimes just don't work. And you don't want your camera on something that's not 100% in the proper position. Courtney? Yeah, in the prosumer space, um, Manfrotto probably has that best locked up. In the professional space for Aries and Panavision cameras, we use uh, mostly use the Sackler Touch and Goes, uh, which is the Touch and Go release system, which has a, a small base plate that snaps into this uh, release uh, female release capture plate that goes on top of the heads, and those will fit on most top of most professional uh, uh, fluid heads or gear heads. And Alex. In broadcast, it's VCTs. The VCT is the is the one that everybody uses in broadcast. <laughs> Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, uh, British Columbia, back again, says, do people use Video Follows Audio in MixEffect Pro? And how do you use it if you have an outboard audio chain? Mitchell, real quick. It uh, might be a trick question. It's audio follows video generally uh, on uh, on your ATEMs. There's there's actually a button for that, and anything going into that is an outboard device audio chain. So if you use it built in, when you click the video selection, the audio comes with it. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois says, I'd like to use an Insta360 link camera in a production over 100 feet or more distance back to the switcher. What options are available for getting a USB-C connection converted over distance? Guy, real quick. 
Yeah, Video360 has some long medical grade uh, USB extension cables. There's also uh, one, if you, uh, I'll put it at a link in the chat that we got that was fiber for uh, Tom's uh, rack that was about 50 feet and they had some longer ones. And then new at the show that I saw was J5 Create has a wireless webcam extender, 88 feet. So push the uh, the receiver a little bit further to get your, your extra 12 feet. And then you could wirelessly extend a any webcam uh, via this device that's coming out. Oh, that looks so cool. <laughs> Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Guy, is that the new version of the Axoon SEMO that was released last fall? Will it actually clamp on the back of an iPad or just an iPhone? Guy? You're on mute. Here's the new one right here, and it clamps onto the back of an iPad Pro. That's the new cage. And then you, it is uh, not a new SEMO. It's just a new cage. So you can see it there uh, powering and uh, giving the uh, HDMI signal into the iPad. So that's that. Awesome. Well, we are just about at the top of the hour and we are, well, the next question, sorry about that, Bill. Next question. My time was off. I need to get the atomic clock. That's okay. <laughs> I was wondering whether the Kilo Show stuff was up yet or not. So this one is, what are some good examples of shows using vMix titles and or graphics that comes from Albi Lopez in San Antonio? Alex? Yeah, I think that we, one of the things we're looking at is having a second hour on vMix graphics specifically. So, um, and really talk about what it takes to get those graphics done and whether you use external data and um, in lower thirds and so on and so forth. So stay tuned. I think we're going to try to bring in some vMix folks to talk about that very specifically. Wonderful. Thank you so much, producers, for your questions. Know that those questions that we didn't get a chance to get to, that they've been sent back so that you can always resubmit them tomorrow or anytime this week. So now that we're at the top of our second hour, we're going to talk about the Kilo Show, the 1000th episode of Office Hours. And we have some of the fantastic crew that was a part of it. And we're really going to just spend some time now to walk through how did we put this all together, some of the lessons learned. And I'm super excited about this. Let's, Josh, can you kick this off for us? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Thanks, Liberty. Yeah, it was uh, fantastic um, being able to put on um, this show. And we hope to show a little bit about uh, the behind the scenes and how we went about uh, producing the show. And um, we have a lot of the, the folks, um, not not all the folks, but we have a few of the folks here that uh, were able to to help us with it because there was such a, uh, a large amount of people that really jumped in and helped us with this production. Um, Brian has a fantastic uh, presentation that he's going to show. Uh, but before he does, I'm just going to talk a little bit about how we got the, the planning started and how we really looked into the community to get their input for what kind of show that they wanted, since this is a show really uh, not just about a, a thousand shows, but it's about all of the community that really came along and evolved uh, for all of those those shows. So um, if we remember back in November, uh, it just started off a few months uh prior to the event, uh, we started asking the community um, what they wanted. So we had a couple of planning shows. Um, some of us uh, jumped on and uh, asked the community, you know, what type of show are you looking for? What do you want to see? And so it really gave us a lot of different ideas about what, what the community was interested about. And we even 
did um, a couple of them, even a follow-up about what we were planning. We took some of the ideas for the first one and carried it to the second one. Uh, we also uh, looked into Discord. There is a, um, a vibrant uh, discussion community uh, about, you know, tell us about your different ideas. What sorts of things should we include? And we took those ideas uh, from the Discord and then put uh, some of them into a voting category. So there were several things about, you know, is this something that you want to see? You know, give us a, a thumbs up for it. Or different people wanting to contribute different videos. So we asked that. So we really wanted to see, you know, uh, since this was a, was a story about the community, we wanted to get the community's input uh, about, you know, w- what kind of show they wanted. And so at some point, we had to buckle down, take the suggestions that were made, and start into production. And I think um, Brian can can get really more into just how we went about making the production. Thanks for like even sharing that, Josh, of just like the backstory of all those elements and like all those pieces to to get everyone um, to get everyone's feedback, because there's some people that use the channel, some people that show up for the shows and really bringing um, the community together. And um, Brian. Yeah, thanks, Liberty. So as Josh said, um, we were planning really Oh, two to three months ahead of the actual show itself. And um, I've got a bit of a presentation uh, just to take us through a quick overview of, of what went into the planning and the pre-production for the 1K show and some of the things that we've uh, learned during the process. So how do you condense 999 daily episodes, community events, uh, labs, technical infrastructure, and really just the whole history of office hours into one succinct package. And the 1K show was essentially a love letter to office hours, and it was designed to give panelists the opportunity to have deep, rich conversations, share stories about what office hours means to them. Throughout the show, we heard from OGs, from people who built the system from the ground up, and how this community has grown from strength to strength. And the 1K show was made possible because of the Office Hours 2.0 backend infrastructure and 300 odd days of working within in that system, testing and refining the model. And we were able to take the learning from this and other remote productions such as NAM, Cinegear and IBC and apply it to this show. So this was certainly an international production with a great crew of volunteers from around the globe and each member of the core team was able to contribute their own expertise to the planning for this event. And as you can imagine, coordinating remote productions from across different time zones has its challenges. As part of the pre-production, we knew it was important to meet often and communicate with different department heads, keeping everyone up to date with progress. We learned from previous events that if you're going to include video assets in a production, you need to get the editing team involved right from the start. And a huge thanks to our editors who worked right up to the show date on delivering video packages. And a special thanks to Lucidlink, who again made it possible for us to work remotely. And it's definitely a great platform for large file sharing, especially between Canada and Australia. So two months prior to the event, we started planning, recruiting panelists, asking for topics, ideas, and video assets. 
we set up a Discord channel to communicate with the core team and the departments and use Google Docs to share planning information. And these are great apps for working with remote teams. Using the office hours infrastructure meant we could work with the backend crew and the new 2.5 system. Our plan was to create a tight, complex production, more like a TV broadcast than a regular office hour show. And so we needed to extend it beyond the normal two hours. The 1K show was designed to be a kind of virtual campfire where panelists could tell their stories and experiences of office hours. And we wanted to include video contributions from community members, read out chat comments, and have live performances. So it was like having three second hour shows back to back. To give the show some structure and include all the assets, we identified three broad themes, connection, community, and collaboration. And these themes informed each of the three hour blocks. Each hour was broken into two segments with their own tags and an expert panel group. And most topics had a discussion, chat comments, and a Q&A component. We had 43 panelists for the 1K show with a full gallery of 16 panelists in each hour. And a good example of back-end logistics was moving panelists on and off stage. And this involved communication between pre-show coordinators, the tech engineer, video playback, show caller, TD, uh, panel liaison, anchor, and of course, the panelists. We mapped out each queue of the runner show, and this helped to coordinate logistics between the backend team and the anchor. And queues were communicated to the panel via Makana and the panel liaison, and the runner show became the source of truth. It helped everyone stay on topic and keep to time. So rather than being restrictive, this structure really gave us flexibility to support the panelists and let the conversations happen. To finish up, some of the key takeaways from this show were communicate clearly, whether it be on comms, on Discord, or in meetings. Being able to communicate your intent goes a long way to making a successful production. Be professional and respectful at all times. Look, we're a group of volunteers and when someone gives up their time, don't waste it for them. And finally, deliver a great, minimal, viable product. It's uh, good to be ambitious, but it doesn't matter if you can't be executed. And be realistic, plan effectively, and deliver the best show you can within your means. Finally, if you'd like to be part of a production, there are many roles that you can take on that don't require technical expertise. And if you have any experience with administration or planning, we would love to hear from you. Um, we certainly need more admin staff, runners, researchers in the group. And being an understudy for a production is also another great way to get involved and learn about roles. So if you are interested, reach out to Josh or any of the team here. And I'll hand back over to the rest of the team. Thank you so much for that, Brian. It was great to see just the timeline and all the elements that came into it and really the reinforcing the themes that were presented and that represent the Office Hours community. Sky? I, I called it the impossible show. And and Brian, you really showed 
the the choices and the decisions and they were hard because again what thousands of people thousands of hours how do you choose and the creative uh direction that that josh says well, i want to hear the story of this he's very passionate about understanding the story and of course i am too so consequently what shape and 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 uh was it an elephant? Was it a duck? Was it an avocado? We had we had to make those choices. And at what point do those people uh, get to participate and how? And so that was a great uh, recap, Brian. But I, I just think the impossible ex experience that this is, Alex, continues to expand. And, and again, thank you for your inspiration and, and creating a nutrient-rich environment that this could be possible. Kristen? Yeah, and you've just seen some building blocks which look maybe quite uh, easy to handle <laughs> on the presentation. And but what it meant that we had these seven seven topics in three hours was that we added a lot of complexity on Mukana, which then is uh, connected to our system where we as the TDs then are cutting the shows and so on. So it was just, uh, it was really great to to um, have the experienced teams and the part teams who have never worked this way together, but in different shows. And yeah, to work out the whole flow. Awesome. Dave. Yeah, we, we had 10 days of possible edit time when the submission window closed and the deadline arrived. Uh, using Discord, we accepted those suggestions, as, as Josh pointed out, uh, as well as some images for the ending collage, which worked pretty well for us. And yeah, uh, reinforcing what Brian said about LucidLink, it works really well for all of us. Uh, it was able to allow live links to resolve on Final Cut, which meant that we could edit virtually from the cloud. And it also allowed anyone who built something like a lower third machine or a slate could share those elements between each of the editors. And that was a new thing for me because we didn't do that at IBC. Uh, we expected when we saw the list of uh, suggestions, uh, there were about 30 YouTube items that might have had to have been downloaded and at three gigabytes a show. Uh, and then for us to scroll through shows to find the clips, uh, we were looking at a lot of work. Uh, Adrian did yeoman service by going through the entire list of possible clips that accumulated up to December 9th and started downloading them into our raw materials folder on Lucid. Uh, he used a thing called ut.com, y-o-u-t.com, which he already had a membership for. And this, most of us were expecting to use Downy or other downloadable uh, tools, uh, but he found that you could get just the clip. So the suggestions we were getting included the time in the show where that clip was, but we couldn't know where the ending was. Um, so in UTCOM, you can go to the ending of the clip and then just download that section. And so we weren't downloading the whole show. Uh, we also used some of the music uh, came from Victor, and, and we were really appreciative that music was provided and we didn't really have to have a lot of uh, royalty-free stuff to search for. Uh, having started with 30 possible items to edit. And uh, over time, we found through when the building of the run of show was, and Brian talked about how including the editors in the process from the beginning is a real good idea because we didn't know when to start editing until that got locked. So the run of show went through, I think, three com complete rewrites to bring it down to these themes and to make it more of a conversation show instead of just a playback show. 
And so when it was finished, the run of show had only about 10 items. And we only had to revise about five of these videos, which I claim is a victory for the editing posse because uh, we obviously understand the requirements and the vision for the show to be able to submit so many so close to finish. Uh, there were a number of silent video items to be used while the panel was discussing a subject, uh, but it was just material to use just in case if there was room. And some of that was used and some other parts weren't. Uh, there were some issues renaming files before putting them in the hopper. Uh, Josh was running playback, and he and Brian worked out what the tag on the run of show was going to be, as opposed to what the previous tags number was, which the editors were using. So we tried to keep up with that, and uh, Kyle tried to keep us up to speed with that, but he couldn't be available all the time. So we had a a little bit, one or two items just had to be renamed, even though the slate would say the previous name. Uh, the playback method was modeled on the IBC show, and our process might have benefited from a little more rehearsal and practice with the crew to get a flow going for the sequence of events that have to happen to switch to video and then come back out of video. Uh, so we hope future shows will incorporate uh, some more practice time and that we allocated uh, enough for this show, but we might have just added a little bit more. Uh, we did have practice time with the TDs where they could hear the run of show walk through and give us an idea of what was going to happen when. I think, Liberty, you were part of that, and it was very helpful for you to organize your thoughts about how this show sequence was going to go. Uh, we were hoping Laura would be here today to talk about how Mukana was affected by this. And I can tell you, as part of the McKenna gang, um, it was a, a more hands-on than we've had in any other show. Uh, mostly because, of course, three hours means you're going to have almost three crews. Uh, and we had a lot of people helping other people. And we even had spare people in case someone had to leave. So that, that's pretty much what we did in editing. And uh, if others want to talk about how McKenna worked, uh, that would be helpful for me as well. Thank you. Kenneth? Well, I can add a, a moment or two about uh, what happens beforehand. The, the job of the pre-show coordinators, the PSCs, uh, is just to get all the who's in at the right whens and put them in the correct where's. And that was easy enough to do. We had three different green rooms uh, that helped us shuffle people around to make sure that they went where they were supposed to go. The checklists that were provided were absolutely critical for us. I was thinking of Olivier uh, and his program on checklists beforehand. We made very good use of those. And, and we could have done it a little better. We think um, in review, the pathway to the stage could have been um, a little better. And, and I'm sure by the 2000 show, we'll have that down pat. If we do tech checks prior to moving the panelists uh, into their green rooms, Instead of uh, interrupting a conversation in the green room to check a, a newly arrived panelist, I think that would would have been a little smoother. Um, the uh, the movement of panelists in and out could have been a little smoother as well, we think. And it would have been really helpful had we had a single designator on the names of the panelists, an alpha designator for the first group, a bravo for the second, a Charlie for the third, that would allow us to recognize immediately who needed to leave and who needed to come back during that frenzy uh, in between the hour breaks. Uh, I think that probably would have been the, the most help to us. And thanks very much to all the other PSCs, the pre-show coordinators who were with us uh, that day. Um, TJ and his hat, uh, Greg and Kyle and Micah, and of course, 
Brandon, who was everywhere all at once. Well done. Go ahead, Mitchell. It's very interesting uh, to see all the moving parts. I had a little bit of a 2,000 or 5,000 uh, foot view of this because I was not working near as hard as all these people in the background. But the real tribute to an organization that puts together a program like this, which is as good as any TV program, um, is to be able to drop in the last three days as talent and immediately know where your position is, feel very comfortable, have all the information you need, all the cues you need to hear uh, so that you can interact um, uh, with uh, what's going on. Of course, working with Liberty is a real pleasure. Um, my job and Bill's job was to be uh, the co-host and chat uh, coordinators, uh, not coordinators, uh, chat readers. And speaking of chat, that was something new. I've never had that before, where we actually incorporated what people were saying um, into the show, and it was a curated list. So I didn't have to look at it and decide, well, this might be good, this might be bad. Um, it was a list that was the already being built there, and all we had to do when we were called on to read it was to go look at it. So every tiny little bit was taken care of. And I worked in a lot of productions over the years. This is as good as any of them or better. Um, and as talent, where you're just supposed to look good on screen, the people behind you, all of the people that were working behind the scenes, were there to make you look good. And they did. And if there were any problems, I didn't see them. And I don't think our viewers did either. And that's, that's a real mark of an excellent production. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah. And um, one of the things that... Uh, that we planned around was having a uh, robust schedule of rehearsals and uh, practices. And we really planned, we, we learned this lesson from some of the other previous shows that we had of having, you know, what we could add at a certain point. Um, Alex gave us some good guidelines about when we should start cutting off the content uh, guideline. We did that about 10 days before. And we basically had our planning schedule planned around our final rehearsal. So having our final rehearsal fixed and making sure that we have everything in place. And of course, nothing new about that, but just figuring out things. But then planning backwards for that, we really looked at um, getting the different parts of the show together, whether it was the video play out. So having those individual people play uh, handle those. Having the individual teams have their own uh, meetings and coordinating those, like the pre-show coordinators that Ken was able to represent there was really critical uh, in order to seeing this show uh, come about. And of course, there's lots of things that we'd, we'd love to, to throw in into it, but it was it was a way of us uh, really having a sane check on what we could conceivably do and having the high quality that we expect on some of our shows. Yeah, this was, it was a fantastic experience. And I like also how Brian had shared, you know, the buildup of all the past productions and events that helped us to get to this point where it was a little bit different. We, it was a span over three hours, panels moving in and out, but um, just even kudos to Laura who could not be here today, but just even the detail of like meetings, there were pop-up meetings through Discord of like, hey, can you talk now? And talking through how Mukana would work and and the details of like just on on my end being able to participate in those meetings because it's not just showing up and and talking on camera there's really the understanding of how the mechanics works because when you are in the midst of it in the thick of it there's so many moving pieces and I like to use sports analogies like if you're doing you know suicide runs or um or practicing your dribble when it comes game day like you're moving automatically through 
through. And, you know, there was there was a part that that I missed, but nobody knew that it was missed because the back end team was a well-oiled machine. So just being able to move things around quickly and having all those documents created so that, you know, here's this lane where I can see all these notes are, are amazing, you know, chat readers and anchors had all that data and all that information in front of them. And just I just want to share, reinforce like just how much those details and the thought behind them and people being able to work on the fly to make that happen, to make it this well-oiled machine. Brian? Yeah, look, I agree, Liberty. Being able to have the office hour infrastructure already there and the back-end team who work on this show daily was such a, a help in in being able to deliver the kind of program that we wanted to deliver. And again, uh, pre-production, it's sort of all about working out what you want to be able to do and what you can achieve in the time. So we start off with sort of a really high idea of, of, of what we want to have, but then it's about whittling it down and really trying to get it so that it's concise and it's going to work. Um, but at the same time too, once we had that structure, we were able to have some flexibility throughout the show and we could sort of move and change. And I know, um, you know, speaking uh, with you via Chad um, as panel liaison and just giving you the updates when things were moving. It, I mean, it was quite fast on show day, but we, we felt that we had a really good understanding about what we wanted to try and achieve. And so we were able to be flexible on the day because of this pre-production and all the planning that goes in beforehand. And that's something that um, I'm learning more and more that, you know, it's all about the show, but it's also, you know, to get to that, you, you have to really put in the hours and the time and, and make that worthwhile in the pre-production. And I think this group banded well together. We really had a common vision that that got worked out right from the start. What We kind of knew what we wanted to do, but it was just how logistically to get there. And so by communicating all the time, by having those, those meetings with the different groups, we're actually able to get to a consensus, um, get everyone on the page, and then deliver the show. And Dave? I want to go back to Brian's point about having people who can admin is key to this. And I got to put a shout out to Laura because she took on the role of getting everyone organized on comms and knowing who was going to be on panel and as well, all the mechanic stuff at the same time. And we had terrific uh, comms behavior and we had a really quiet comms that allowed the showrunner to hear everything going on and not have to deal with off-camera stuff as much. Uh, and I, I credit Laura with working with Mickey and demanding people get listed on the comms before we even had our panel locked in uh, so that she could have that flexibility. And I think we only, at rehearsal, we discovered we had one person still not lined up on comms, and that was helpful too. But, uh, you know, for administration purposes, I think that was really neat. One of the things I wanted to point out, and I was only just reminded of it listening to you guys talk, but we had a, added a moment in the show, which was requested uh, somewhere in one of our meetings, that we show the gallery of people uh, who are watching in the uh, the theater, uh, the quiet theater. And we worked that out to be able to have a moment in the show where we could show that, and Brandon uh, quite rightly set up a way that we could do that. And I thought it was a, a, a very interesting moment in the show for us to be able to say to those who were 
coming at us through McKenna or watching us do it on uh, the Quiet Theater, that they're part of the show too. And that gallery isn't part of what we do with the 2.5. Uh, but we may in the future try and incorporate a few more of these sort of audience uh, showbacks to uh, who's who's actually uh, in, in participating in, in their own way. That's a great reminder, just the interactive pieces that were added from chat reader to showcasing the community uh, on that side. Great point there, Dave. Josh? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what I was thinking too, um, along with um, the ways that the show was uh, yet another office hour show and the ways that it was different. We we tried to keep the format as, as close as possible where we could, you know, having the same um, driven by Mukana uh, uh, questions and answers where people um, could, could show up on the show. Even if we didn't see them in the gallery, we saw them because they were able to, to vote their questions up. And that was really what dro drove our place for the show. Of course, we had the sections in it for the show, just like we do for here. But also we opened things up a little little wider, um, even into the chat. Like it was it was mentioned, we had um, an actual chat manager that uh, originally was was uh, we thought about having a person that that was their their dedicated job. And then as we consolidated the number of spaces that we we had for the panel, what we did is consolidate that job for the reader. So the reader either read the McConaughey questions or they read at certain sections um, different curated things from our chat manager. Uh, so Peter Belbin was was able to take care of that for us. So we had something that was a little bit of a uh, new little little bit of experiment to see how that how that worked. I, I think it I think it worked uh, pretty well as far as having that that avenue. Um, maybe not you know totally focusing on that, but making sure that when people showed up for this live event, they knew that there was a, a few ways and that they could get involved and really be a part of of the show. So like we mentioned, we had a couple of new things. Of course, we had different playouts uh, planned ahead of time. Um, the media was something, you know, content is either, it's either easy to, to watch or it's, or it's easy to produce. And I can say, uh, vouching for our, our editors, that um, it was easy to watch uh, because of the work, the hard work that they put into it. So having that, um, having it bookend different things and having that enable our panel rotation, which is something we had never tried before. Um, we started off very ambitious about having a bunch of uh, crews move in to be able to change the panels. But then we, you know, we looked at it and we, we looked at really the themes that we were trying to cover and could we do this in a more simple way? So while we did do the panel rotations, we were able to start with a panel. So we didn't have any, need to do any rotations there and then rotate two other times. So we were able to get three full uh, panels in that had represent representation from people that could cover all the different themes that we wanted to cover in the show. So Brian uh, Shan really did a, a fantastic job of really eyeing up, uh, making sure that those things were covered during those shows. Uh, but it still had that, I think it still had that office hours flavor to it, but you could tell that, you know, it was a little heavier about we had more to cover and there was a lot more um, that, that we were doing. And there were a few things we were experimenting, but we, we kind of pulled our elbows in a little bit just to make sure that it was something that would be watchable and something you'd want to go back and, and watch for afterwards. It was something that would live on afterwards. So um, that and the, the after hours preview, that was mentioned, were a few things that we sort of experimented and not that we didn't uh, practice or rehearse them, but were ways in which we could expand the show. You know, which ways, which, what are things in which we might want to add to the show. So there was a few opportunities that we had to be able to pull some new novel things in. And Sky. Just, uh, Josh, I'm so proud of you. 
I just, brother, you came in early days of, of the office hours, uh, space experiment and said, let's, let's participate. And you'd done some things with, with, uh, uh, Noah Sargent. And the, the fun of that was you, you chose to make choices and I'm looking at what we're talking about now and it looks so solid, but four months ago, it was just this amorphous gaseous thing of an idea. And the only solid thing about it was it was, it was a, there was a day and that was going to be the thousandth time that, that a thing was going to happen. But again, making all those choices, uh, was, was a discovery of, um, what were the opportunities we had? What were the resources we had? And also how do we involve and engage as many humans as possible. And at that point, we had the whole day. So that was the office hours opportunity. I mean, sorry, the after hours opportunity was the conversation that could continue after the show. So this has just been a, it looks so solid now as we're looking back on it. But I just remember it's like, we were discovering, we were developing, we were creating, and then finding the, the, the people that wanted to participate in that vision. All right, Bill, let's get into these questions. All right. First one comes from Douglas Carmichael, and he asked, did you ever have to take manual control over the infrastructure bypassing Universe and or Isadora? Go ahead, Brian. So working with the 2.5 system uh, was really great for this production. And if you can imagine not being able to have all of that infrastructure and trying to do something like this, um, I just don't know how you would do it. So it was really robust and held up, but also being able to have the back-end team who work here daily, they just know this system. And I really, I was coming in as a bit of an outsider myself because, it, you know, I, I don't really work on the back end as much as a lot of the team, but we had sort of 20 something people working in the back end to make this production such a success. And so it's, I mean, it shows that this is a really robust system. We've had what, 300 odd days from 2.0 and it held up. And really, I mean, this was testing the system you know, beyond the day-to-day -day capabilities that we do. But we really were able to see that you can take something like this and really give it that extra lift. And, I mean, it's got the potential, of course, um, to, to go beyond just our office hours community to something else as well. Next question. Next one comes from James Babbitt in San Diego. Excellent video clip, the 12 days of Office Hours Christmas. Who created and recorded and edited this video and how long did it take to produce? Josh? Well, I know that the, the video took a, a very long time to produce. I, I'll just uh, show some of the credits so I don't speak out of canon as far as who's uh, responsible. But you'll notice there the orchestration and video editing is uh, Brian Anderson there. So that, I think that answers your question. Bill? Yeah, I have to tell you that the band experience for the Office Hours Band is starting back when the very first piece that they did. And I say they in this particular case, because I had nothing to do with this last one. Uh, Dale Nebetta was the, actually the project manager for this. Brian Anderson created that video. Uh, but the people in the Office Hours Band, if you have ever been on the outside of music and really want to get a deep understanding of how excellent music is created and how teams come together to all contribute 
This experience has been stunning. There is so much talent, not just in the band, the people that you see, but the people behind the scenes who sweat these little details, the arrangements, the, the playing, the revising. It's a master class in how a great piece of video music content is built. And I can't tell you how much joy I've derived from even being peripherally involved. Again, I had nothing to do with this one. I'm just talking about the people in this group. They are amazing. Brian? So when we were moving panel between each hour, we were playing videos um, over the top. And I mean, part of this, which was so great, was getting um, assets like that remotes clip to be able to play out. And the amount of work and effort that went into a clip like that just enhanced the overall production, I thought. So uh, thank you again to the remotes. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. What specific comms changes were needed for this show versus the daily office hours model? Kristen? Yeah, we had an additional complete extra area for the comms for the 1K show, which were also having the channels we usually have, but also additional ones. And also the groups were reshaped, especially for that show. So things like we've done for IBC before and things like that. And Brian. Yeah, the ability to have comms for a show like this or really any of the productions we do um, is really important. And um, again, thank you to Jim um, and for his work with contributing with the comms as well, but also being able to use comms and everyone being so professional when they're using it. And um, that's what Dave was talking about before, because it can get very complicated. So having that um, ability to be able to just talk clearly on comms, everyone's got their own channel. That was a great uh, way to be able to communicate to between the panel and the back end team. Next question. Next one comes to us from Sky Gleason in Seattle. Why was the Kilo show only three hours? <laughs> only, <laughs> Josh. Yeah, yeah, good question. So, um, you know, we we started out um, in those uh, planning sessions that you talked about, asking people what they wanted to see and how we wanted to plan for it. And um, Alex, of course, gave his support. He took off for the day and he says, I'm ready. You know, we're, we can make this as long as it needs to be. And so we, we looked about what, you know, what we could practically put into the session to be able to, uh, you know, what we wanted to, to stuff into it. And we started considering what our volunteers, since we were using the 2.0 system or 2.5 now system, we wanted to consider, um, you know, how long a shifts are we going to make for them? Because, you know, one of the things that we've learned from doing previous shows, some of them, we've had quite long shifts and we've done shorter ones too. And we've noticed that, you know, having a shorter show where you're able to get the quality in and be able to not overwork your your volunteers means that you could probably have an, another show uh, later. So instead of burning all of our volunteers, we decided what would be, you know, uh, reasonable for the amount of people that we had that we could fit uh, a reasonable time period. And so we kind of settled on this uh, three-hour time period. And we were comforted in the fact that um, even though we were, you know, commemorating a thousand shows and you know all of the things that you couldn't possibly uh, you know put into this commemoration there was more about the the kilo show day and so a lot of the the things that we had planned and things that that fell on the the <laughs> the editor's uh, cutting room floor we were able to continue even after our three hours of our show to continue in after hours as planned that we would continue this and 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 
pull forward. So that's sort of the this is sort of how we we ended up about uh, about what would be a, a good condensed show that you would want to go back and and check it out and, and watch later and and not kill our volunteers. Good point, Dave. Well, I'm going to answer Sky's question with, uh, you know, we could have done six if Sky was going to take Liberty's seat and then, you know, do the other three hours. Right. Uh, we had enough material for six hours. We also understood that we're taking a whole day uh, out of people's lives and that really 90 minutes at a time is a good cycle uh, for people to pay attention to what we're doing. So uh, there were lots of, Josh has outlined many of the considerations, but there were a lot of discussions about how long this should be. And it, it varied. It varied widely. Guy? Well, when I heard Alex had taken the day off, I was thinking, so Mickey's volunteering to run comms and JJ's going to keep pushing buttons. But so the, the concept of having an after hours uh, party or gathering afterwards was, was to be able to satisfy that because we were also realized it's a global audience. And Brian, what time is it there in your world? It's different. It's just, you know, I just put my wife off to work, but it's, you know, you put your kids to it's bed two hours ago. Almost. Yeah, it's what, half past three? In so, the morning. Yeah. So, yeah, these were considerations of, of, again, the calculations of, was it a conversation? Was it a show? When was it a show? When was it a presentation? And so I love that Josh started so early that this development process could happen with this kind of a new concept. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, look, I mean, the show itself was three hours and, you know, we, we could take it also into after hours. But, you know, a type of show like this, you want to have other activities or, or events as well that are tied in that are adjacent to, to what's been the main show. And so there's really room for people who want to take on, you know, other things as well. It might be even meeting up face to face or just being able to use that online platform, that remote platform like we've we have um, to do these other events and have smaller mini productions. And to just even going off, that's what I was thinking too, Brian. It's like, we really hit a sweet spot with that three hours. You always want to like stop just enough when it's good and not when you're like going off the cliff. And then when people are looking back at the show, it was just too long. And as you shared, like who knows what that next thousand show will look like with all the labs that we have going on with the evolution of office hours that there may be more, even a little bit more structured in that after party, or there could be global meetups that are happening during that. So it definitely makes room for those kinds of activities because it's while we anchor office hours on this are two hours, there's so much more that goes on outside of the uh, the live broadcast. Jason? It's no accident that no university in the world teaches a lecture that's longer than three, three and a half hours. It's not about intelligence. It's simply because there is a limit to human attention. And After Hours was so much fun after that show, Alex, with, um, <laughs> with oh, man, that was great. Um, minions crossing the, what was it, the Potomac it was great. And Dave. Um. You know, the idea just popped up here in this conversation that maybe there should have been watch parties set up in different parts of the world where groups of people who are familiar with office hours would just get together and be part of the show that way. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, will you be distributing the excellent montages from the show that weren't broadcast? Dave? 
Oh, I certainly hope so. I don't know what the mechanism would be for putting those in some sort of server and letting, or a section of YouTube for office hours global. So I'd like to both back um, in IBC, we had a lot of back uh, behind the scenes stuff and that's never been shown. Uh, some of it from NAM never been shown. Uh, some of it's just silly, but other parts were really intriguing and showed how the show was made. But also just for the purposes of having material that was mostly developed and even in our case, finished edits, but then later not made it to the show. Yeah, we should have an accommodation for that somewhere in our planning. Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area asks, were there other custom control UI platforms, and he notes Universe, considered? And if so, what else is out there? Brian? Um, well, I can't talk for the back-end crew, but the 2.5 uh, system has been using Universe and Isadora, and that's fantastic, especially for the TDs. And, I mean, it's a really simple interface, but it has um, a lot of functionality. But more importantly, within the pre-production, being able to use things like the Google Docs that you can customize, Google Sheets, that was really important. And I'd really like to see that improve more, that we've got something that we can um, share and improve. And there's been a, a document that's sort of gone through all of the different uh, productions, I think, since sort of NAM, and it's just got more refined and more refined over the time. And um, the last one from IBC influenced um, how we use documentation from this. So being able to have the customization in something like Google Sheets that works for us specifically, as opposed to relying on um, a commercial product to help with uh, pre-production, show running, etc., cetera, um, just gives you more flexibility as well. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Once again, I liked seeing JJ and the back-end crew at work. Have you thought of adding that to the occasional regular show? Dave. Oh, there's some considerations there uh, regarding people in the back-end. Some of them don't want to be seen. They like being in the back-end. Uh, some people just like being the crew. And they're really happy back there. But if you put them on camera, they're not happy. And also there's a different behavior when you're on camera. You have to behave a little differently and you can't, you know, slouch in your chair and sit in the dark and all the rest that some of our crew do. So uh, it it's not that they can't do it. It's that they might not prefer to do it. And we're very concerned about having our volunteers be comfortable and just be known for their skills. So uh, we encourage anybody to be on the panel at any time. And there's a lot of expertise back there, as you're pointing out, who might contribute to our regular shows. But you really have to take into consideration if the person just doesn't want to. Kirsten? Yeah, as one of the back-end crew person, <laughs> I can maybe talk to this as I'm the first time on the panel today and I'm usually more in the technical director role or I'm in the question manager or other roles in the back-end. So it's quite different, I can say, because when you're cutting the show, then you listen and you watch very specific things which are important to really have the great cut and all the things. And also when you're a question manager, you're focused on other things. So it's not really the main thing to be on camera there. It's more to produce the best show we can. So, And some of us are shy, that's right. <laughs> 
but we're so happy that you are here because this goes to show just the the learnings that happen like I'm happy I get privy to that in discord in the meetings but just the opportunities there are to be a part of the back end and how you can learn and grow and the understudy I know that Goodwin was also understudy and to to see all the faces that that make office hours happen so so happy that you are here next question Kirsten, don't be a stranger. Paul Terry Wallace up next. Brian, did this change your concept of show running? Brian. Yeah, so obviously the role of the showrunner is both uh, someone who's creative and also managerial. And there was actually in the core team, we sort of, you know, Josh and, and Sky, myself and Dave and and Laura even were contributing to, to really the runner show, but um, I mean, ultimately, I came in a little bit later and and took a lot of the ideas and just sort of organised them. But it was everyone everyone's contribution to to what they wanted to put in. And I mean, I, my own background, I you know produce online um, training, educational uh, training content, and being able to sort of use all of those skills was important. But it was more about working with shows like IBC. So working with a team like Mickey and Jonas and Richard and actually working from the start where I, I started off as as the note taker in, in the meetings and I just learnt and watched them and saw that um, production from start to finish. And so it was that experience more than anything else that, that really helped me shape um, how to approach going into this show. Sky? And because you had not been a part of the creative process at the very beginning, you were able to be a little more, um, I don't want to say the word brutal, what, accurate, uh, articulate. And also once we determined it was a three-hour uh, box that we had to fit a thousand you know, concepts into, you were, you were very uh, gracious in listening to the input of, you know, we, we, we really should have this piece of element in there. And you were able to find you know, if a second ask was asked to put something in, you you found a place for it, but you were also very articulate in understanding, yeah, it's only three hours. And so we got to figure out how to squeeze this into that shape. So again, Brian, thank you. Yes, I co-signed that. Thank you. I think I said this in the after hours on the kilo day, but um, as the question that was asked in the first hour by Paul Wallace of like defining the showrunner and you coming in as the person who kind of put all the pieces together in the continuity that helped me tremendously to be able to, as much as I was in meetings and, and prepping for hosting, but to then really be able to, like we spent an hour, um, you said your, your door is open. We spent an hour going line by line through the um, through the show, the run of show, and to really be able, like you were able to give context to why things were happening, which then therein helped me to be able to really bring the community and the audience through the experience. So it's Pre-production is paramount, but then having someone who can bring all of that together for the technical side and then for talent side, it's like, it was just fantastic. So thank you for that, Brian. Yeah, I think you really just, at the end of the day, you have to make a decision and it could be good or bad, but ultimately, I think if you own that decision and you're willing to see it through, it, it's going to be of benefit in the end. And 
I think ultimately we we had a great production. I mean, I was really proud of, of both the show, but also the team and, and the back-end team and the panellists. And I mean, it was an opportunity to hear some of the lore from Office Hours. And, and really, we were there to support the panellists have those really great conversations. So ultimately, everything was about um, supporting the panellists and making a great show. Next question. Next one comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh. What do you imagine we'll be reviewing for our 2000th show, Labs, Special Shows, Guests, and Community? Sky? Well, again, since we've achieved the impossible, um, can you be more impossibler? I don't know. <laughs> but I think somehow AI is going to be a part of this. I think uh, the, the, the exp exponential opportunity that doing something on a consistent daily basis we are we are kind of ahead of ourselves so if we continue that exponential curve in 2000 shows alex um i'd love to see what you think in your crystal ball because you're always the two fences ahead of me <laughs> two light years ahead um <laughs> brian <laughs> uh mid journey descript and chat gpt Good call there, Alex. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, you know, two and a half years is a long time, so, or, or three years is a long time. So I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity to get, hopefully, a lot done um, in the next 2,000 episodes. Uh, I think that I do, what I really like listening to all of this um, is the idea, I think in two and a half years, I think we'll be at a size where watch parties and get togethers. And this may, we may not be able to do it on a Friday because we have to do it on a Saturday or a Sunday just because we just have to, you know, make it a day, you know, and we get together. I mean, I think that there is this, um, and we talk a lot about being digital, but I think it's a lot of fun. I think a lot of us look forward to like running into each other, you know, when we're, when we're there. And so I think that finding ways that we can um, have, uh, you know, we're going to talk about this on Friday, but like a digital first event that is really, it's not a digital event like we did on this one, but it's, we have spaces and we have people and people are getting together and, and there's a mixture of, of, um, people watching and, you know, we're still presenting digitally, but there's a lot of opportunities for us to get together. Um, I think that, and I think that if we're successful, we'll be doing a lot more where we're doing things in the world and then be, but being connected. So not just sitting here in our, in our studios, you're going to see us over the next two years looking for things where we're doing things together um, and, but connected over, over zoom or whatever we're using there to make that happen. And so, so I think that um, I think that's going to be a really interesting puzzle that, that we'll be looking back on. Next question. Kirsten Osterkamp here on the panel from Germany says, what of this kind of a new concept from the 1K show could partly be used in other second hours and or in other office hours productions? Dave? I think part of this has been discussed actually on Sundays with Alex, where he imagines that we'll have some sort of editing capacity to support the show, that we build up a crew of volunteers who will take on projects that we know are coming a week ahead, work with the people and maybe have other materials brought into the show and have a way of having controlled playback or as we're doing today, side-by-side -side screens where the person's talking about something and, and just being able to make a more rich media environment out of it rather than a face-to-face. The face-to-face -face and the community building and all that doesn't have to be sacrificed there. It's just for some of the enhancements to make it a more compelling presentation for clearer understanding. Josh? 
Yeah, what Dave touched on there about the media was, was kind of what I was thinking too. So we did have some media play out that really was prepared ahead of time. And we had our play out there for the show and having that, you know, uh, intentional content, I think, um, aided, aided the story. But also we tried new things like having the chat reader too and chat manager. So um, different things that uh, we could use to, to look at different aspects of the show, give people uh, different ways of contributing and having that uh, global community where, where no one's left out. Brian? Yeah, look, I think this model where, you know, we're working with pre-production as well and we're able to actually, you know, spin up um, a really good production that's quite tight, a um, bit more like a TV broadcast um, bit more produced maybe but being able to actually show others and and take that outside the office hours um current venue where other people can use that so people who are interested who are looking in and thinking you know is this possible and i think you know there's many people in our community you know who do do this for for a a living uh, but also being able to work with a volunteer group who you know, can put in some time um, and then sort of disperse and come back when needed. I think that'd be really great to see. And Sky. I just think OH Productions has a nice ring. It's got, it's got a nice, it's, I can see the logo already. I'm going to go into mid-journey and find it. <laughs> Dave? Um, I, I guess we, for Kirsten's benefit, I guess we should keep our eyes on the next two and a half years of what kind of group productions are done, community-led productions. We're certainly looking at going back to conventions and outside events, but there may be others, uh, not just space all the time, but some others like uh, air shows or uh, some of the other museum tour things and all all those suggestions that have been brought out in the past. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What role did Discord play in the thousandth show? Josh? Well, I spoke about it a little bit, um, the way that we organized in asking our community and getting uh, feedback from the community using Discord uh, with the discussion channel um, and also with our voting channel, right? But there were some other ones that weren't public-facing that we used Discord for as well. There's one that um, we used for our planning committee. So all the people on the crew had access to our full planning committee, and uh, they actually had their own independent crew thing. So the people that handled the back end of the system had their own uh, specific discord, but then we had sort of a general session of planning for a full discord meeting. Um, also, um, what was a nice thing to do, it kind of reminded me of some of the last question though, um, being that we already knew the panelists, we already knew, had knew who they were coming in, we could prepare them ahead of time. So we actually had their own discord channels for each of the panelists where they came in and they could see you know, who they would be uh, talking with and what part of the story that they would be covering. So we were able to organize them, plus give them instruction about, you know, what was their call times and when they could be pulled into the meetings. So Discord um, had a wide um, wide view. We really leaned on it pretty hard for not just the public facing, but also for planning and preparation and for some nuanced things as well. Next question. Michelle in Wilmington, Delaware, here on the panel, just would like to comment that Liberty is a superior talent as host of all things office hours, and he'd work with her anytime, he says. (laughs) Thank you, Mitchell. Jason? Yeah, plus one on that. Alex, you've got an excellent eye for talent. At first, I thought, who is this person Mondays? Like, I barely saw her, and now she's hosting on Mondays. But, yep, good eye, and Liberty, you're it. 
Thank you, Mitchell. I agree. Uh, Liberty, you're inclusive. That's the best word to ex- to ex- explain what I liked the most about you. Include everybody, and that certainly hits uh, right on to our uh, our mission statement here, not to uh, leave anybody behind. So, uh, congratulations on being such a great. You might be better than uh, Alex is. I've already said that. I've already oh. said that. <laughs> well, I didn't. So there you go. Thank you. And this is, um, I got a message too, uh, just at the turn of the the new year that similarly, like, who is this person? And so I think it also goes back to Alex of just, you know, having an eye and an ear. And I'm saying this also to encourage those of you who are producers and want to get involved because it was in after hours um, that I think was after a show in 2020, I think it was, or 2021 at the top of the year where I said, okay, I'm going to be on camera, not just, you know, in the chat. And that was the impetus to like, to be heard, to be seen and things that hosting has always been the side part. The producing production part has always been the main thing. And then this is like, oh, wait, it's topsy-turvy now. So there are some gifts and skills that you have that they're there. You've used them passively, but maybe it's time for them to, to come out. So that's just my plug there. Brian? Look, I just want to say thank you very much, Liberty, for the role that you had as the anchor for the 1K show. And I think anyone who was looking at the runner show on the back end would have been daunted. But, you know, as always, you were just graceful and and professional and and you did an amazing job. And also to to Bill and Mitch, as well as the co-anchors, you guys were, were great. It was just a fantastic team all around. Awesome team. Josh? I just want to say that uh, it was a bit of, um, you know, fortuitous uh, uh, nature that the 1000 show happened on a Monday. So, of course, Liberty had no choice. She had to be our host, (laughs) our anchor for that. I like that, Bill. (laughs) One of the oldest saws in the business is if you want to look good, work with people who make you better. And that is exactly why I was happy to see Liberty in that seat. She makes everyone works around her look better constantly. It is a rare gift. Thank you both. Thank you. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas. Now that the show is over, what did you learn that would improve another upcoming show of this scale and size? Brian? Look, I mean, these productions are all about learning and they're all about making mistakes as just as much as getting the job done. And I don't know anywhere else where you can have the opportunity to come in as a volunteer who's got no professional experience, um, be asked just to step up and have a go, be able to fail and it's okay, and then be supported um, and then be asked to do it all again at, at a higher role. And I mean, personally, I've gone from being a TD to a show caller to a show runner in over a year. And I've just loved every moment of it because of, of the office hours community and how friendly and engaged and just willing for you to step up and take a role. And so, you know, thank you to the community for the opportunities that I get from, from these shows. Dave. Well, the question's about what I learned and I, and would take to a future show. And I think what we saw Mukana do for us and the uh, new roles that are starting to emerge that will support Mukana and of course, the future of 3.0 is going to make it probably more possible for participation 
in the future, and we're getting there slowly in, in, in increments. And at some point, yeah, we're going to be able to have people submit material almost in real time. Good point. Sky? Well, consistencies that I'm seeing are uh, department heads are, are invaluable and, and then those decision makers, but also that, as Alex has rephrased, the long runway is if you are going to do things with volunteers to give yourself plenty of time. I love that, again, Josh engaged the community and says, what do you want to participate? How do you want to participate? How do you want to, what do you want to, what do you think you want to see? And so those, those hard creative choices uh, in the early stage and then the, well, we got to get it done and it's going to take this resource and or that human to, to make it happen and giving that enough, enough time as well. So again, making choices about what it is and what it is not is, is also critical in uh, didn't do a lot of experimenting with this show. We did a, a couple of things, but we decided this wasn't going to be that uh, experience. It, it needed to be a pretty tight, tight run experience. So uh, the experimenting at during the show, at least was, was kept to a minimum for this experience. Josh. And I'll, I'll answer one of the things that, uh, Paul didn't didn't answer asking about you know improve the scale and size um, proven the the uh, frequency not that we're going to have a thousand shows more often well, who knows maybe we will but um, that we could do these shows um, th this is only possible because we had done uh, NAB and Cinegear and NAM everyone seems to forget about NAB but yes uh, all of the other shows we learned from each of those and then carrying our ball a little bit forward and then we had a little more in the tank after each of those events, after learning what each of us could do, what our capabilities were. Uh, and then as we did, uh, one of the things that IBC really did well is have the uh, the understudy roles so that more people, we, we widen our base as there were more people we could look to, to do really critical roles. And so when we were looking for show leads, um, people would step up and having people to fill, fulfill, uh, fill and fulfill those roles meant that uh, we, could, we could have a wider scope and and also gave us a little bit of a different vision. So at some point, you know, we, we did definitely ask the community about what kind of show that they wanted. But after after we took those suggestions and pulled them in, a lot of those decisions then became internal ones where we, we were looking at what our capabilities were, how many people were there in order to, to take care of certain things. And that determined, you know, ultimately how far we were able to go and, you know, what we were able to do with things. So having more people um, uh, accomplished with that, um, you know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't easy. I will say that it wasn't. It wasn't an easy lift. But for what we were able to do and the amount of um, uh, amount of lift that it was, it was made possible and easier by the previous things that we had done in the past. So it'll just get easier when we do uh, some of the different shows to learn from them and have an understanding, have a larger base of people that can can take care on these different roles. And Alex. What? Thank you, everybody, for such an amazing work. <laughs> you know, it's just so much lifting. I mean, you know, it's just uh, it, it just really is amazing what we're doing here, you know, and amazing that people stand, you know, you know, really stand up and start doing things that are just crazy. You know, and we take on crazy things all the time. And uh, I just want to thank, you know, obviously Josh and Liberty and everyone else at the in the back end. Um, you know, that I, I can't list everybody because, like, you know, it's just Brian and, 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 and Brandon and, and everyone else that, that had put so much work into this. Um, and I really will say that the secret to the operation is to jump on these teams. You know, so, I mean, that is the, we're going to be doing more and more team building over the next year. You know, we, in 
Pixel Core, we had 27 teams that ran year round, <laughs> you know, and they, and, you know, and, and they had, it was a 200 and some people that were working all the time on things. Uh, we chose to, I chose this time to start backwards, which is in Pixel Core, we just started putting people into positions and <laughs> they just started going. And this time I wanted to have people kind of come out of a general, you know, membership uh, or a general group of people that were, were working together. And that's what we're doing right now. And people are just showing up and there's not many places in the world um, where you get to just say, I volunteer to do something and then get to be, have that responsibility and slowly build that up and have a place that you can fail. <laughs> you know, like you, you know, it's obviously we do everything we can not to fail. And the, the team definitely did an amazing job here. But the, um, but the main thing is, is that you don't get that opportunity very often. That's part of why we're here is to give people the opportunity, not just to have a conversation, have their answers, you know, answers questioned and questions answered, um, and not just to learn how to have a great thing here, but to, for us to be working on things together, because that's the best way to network. It's the best way to know what other people will do is not what their business card looks like or, wh or whether they can drink you under at the bar, <laughs> you know, or whether they, you know, whether they'll buy meals, but what are they like in the trenches? What are they like when there's a deadline? What are they like when they, you know, when things need to get done? How, you know, that's when you know who people are and you don't, usually get to do that where where it's a um you know it's a sandbox that's relatively safe you know and i think that um, i would highly recommend this group of people building this stuff is about to get a lot bigger i would highly recommend getting into these as early as you can if you have the time um, and you're trying to break in this is a great way to get those you know get those reps in get the hours in that you need because the the work hours are more important than anything else in this industry. You know, like how many hours you actually, you know, were working on this and and working and doing it by yourself is is great, but doing it with, a, you know, how often do you get to work with a team like this, like a bunch of great people all over the world figuring out the future of production because we're not, you know, we're not, we're creating this future together. Um, so I just, you know, just really, I just want to first take my hat off to everyone who worked on this and and that makes this possible. But I also want to um, invite everybody to, you know, keep on jumping on these teams and taking on those 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 roles because the more of us that put in a little bit of time to make this all work, sometimes a lot of time, but a lot, but but a little bit of time to, to make this work. But the more people that start to shoulder this, the more we start building a future that all of us get to step into together. So um, so anyway, just thank you again to the team that put this together. Just amazing, amazing, amazing work, and uh, can't wait to see the next one. Thank you, Alex. Thank you to our producers for all of your amazing questions, to our panelists and also our Kilo Show backend people that joined us today. Thank you. We hope to see you um, in future shows as well. And to our backend team for without which this would not be possible. Tomorrow, we've got creating Canva, uh, sorry, <laughs> getting creative with Canva and Keynote with David Paskin for our second hour. So Stay for after hours. Come back tomorrow as well. And you want to learn more, head over to officehours.global and we will see you soon. Bye. Yay. Great job, everyone. Got to see the iceberg underneath the water. That was amazing. Great presentation, Brian. Thanks. It's so always bigger under the surface. So big. Huge. At 77,307 miles. The luck traversal. Wow. Got to 700 million bananas. It's a lot of bananas. So many. It's a bunch. So, September 14th.
Sunday, September 14th, 2025. Kilo show. 2K show. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday.